When I see people say, oh, designers should own it or developers should own it, I really think that's also a, should be a shared thing. Design and engineering should share the ownership of the design system together. Otherwise, I just think it, it's going to get too one-sided and you're not going to be solving the full problem. You're only going to be solving a part of the problem. Hi there, I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. If you're involved in any sort of community surrounding design systems, whether that's the Design System Slack channel or the Clarity Conference, then you've probably benefited from Gina Ann's work. Gina was also one of the co-authors of our very own Design Systems Handbook that's published on designbetter.com. So in this bonus episode of the Design Better podcast, Aaron and I chat with Gina about how she got into design systems, what she's learned from building these communities, and we talk a bit about how being a hybrid designer developer influences the way that she understands design systems. We learned a ton from Gina, including how having a design system affects company culture, what to consider when deciding to go public with your design system, or maybe you should just keep it private, how design systems can be effectively governed. There's a lot more to this conversation, so we hope you enjoy it and get ready to hear from author and design systems advocate Gina Ann. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Gina, Ann, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Gina, you have been in the design game for a long time. I've long admired your work. You've done a lot of interesting stuff. You worked at Apple on a big redesign. I think it was the first one using CSS back in the day. Mm -hmm. And people might also know your work from Salesforce, working on the Lightning design systems, one of the most well-known design systems out there. But I'd like to maybe go back a little bit further. Tell us about your origin story. Where did you grow <laughs> up and... You know, like, how did you find your way into design? Yeah, so I grew up around my grandmother, and she was an artist, and she watched a lot of Bob Ross, and, like, would try her hand at I, painting. I love Bob Ross. Yeah. So I got to know how to paint trees really well. Mm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I guess I always kind of felt like I was creative and artistic, and I wanted to be an artist. And then at one point, I told my dad I was going to be an artist and he told me I was going to be poor and starving and that I, I shouldn't go <laughs> that I shouldn't go that route so he wasn't too excited when I uh, told him I was going to art school but mm. just kind of like on the side I was 
I think around maybe 13 or 14 years old when I started actually already tinkering with web. My dad had, I think it was called AOL Press. So it was like a HTML editor, but WYSIWYG style. And so I started tinkering with that on the side. And I think it wasn't until I finally was in college and was trying to figure out, you know, I was a graphic design major and I was trying to figure out my my uh, plan for my career that I realized I could kind of merge my hobby with my design interests. And so that's kind of, I think 2001 was when I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a web designer. <laughs> so yeah, I was doing that, but mostly from an editorial and marketing standpoint, like lots of, lots of band websites because I lived in Memphis. And so that was pretty typical. Um, is, that, is that where you grew up in Memphis? Uh, it's not where I grew up. I mostly grew up in Nashville, but I went okay. to art school in Memphis. That's cool. Yeah. So I was kind of paying my way through college by making little cheap band websites. <laughs> and so I, I got my internship maybe around 2004. And that was actually when I made my first style guide because I was working on, it was a website for the American Contract Bridge League, like the card game. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, apparently they they needed a, a full-on website with all the rules and regulations and all that oh stuff. Oh, my God, there's so many rules. Yeah. Bri bridge is so hard. Yeah, and so I learned a lot on that project because they had me building out the HTML and CSS. But on top of that, as you can imagine, with the demographic for Bridge, accessibility was definitely a concern with font sizes and scalability. So that was very eye-opening for me because I was used to making these one-off grungy band sites that could have tiny pixel fonts and sure. yeah. <laughs> to actually doing something that was accessible and able to change font sizes and things like that. So fast forward to graduating, getting my first real agency job. I was only there for about six months when Apple called. <laughs> so that's actually what kind of moved me out to San Francisco and that was where my focus went from the more like agency, editorial, marketing focus to more of complex web applications, much larger scale projects. Any chance that you were at Apple while Bob Baxley was there? He was my boss at one point. Oh, great. He was just on the show. That's uh, uh, a funny, small world it is. Yeah. So I, I actually had started out on the front end engineering team. And after about a year, I was really eager to switch to a design role. And he normally didn't have people that were under a certain level on his team, but he knew me and, and my work. And so he was very open to me coming over. And so that's when I moved over to the UX team. So that moment when you started working for Apple, did your dad kind of reconsider his thoughts about art school? Uh, yeah, he he loves to tell the story to everyone like, oh, I thought she wasn't going to make it in this career. And now she's traveling the world and speaking, and <laughs> so he's pretty proud of me, even though he still awesome. he still doesn't understand exactly what it is I do. <laughs> so now, now you call yourself a design systems advocate, yep, which I think is great. What does that entail, and why do you think that design systems need ad advocacy? Yeah, so that's a role I kind of started calling myself just from. Partly just manifesting what my dream job would be, <laughs> but also it is the nature of the work I've been doing. So if you count from the moment I made that style guide at my internship, I've been doing 
design systems and style guides and pattern libraries, all those things that you can refer to them as for about 15 years. And I've always found myself eager to work on them, always trying to get my organization that I'm working at to have them. Sometimes got a lot of pushback throughout my career, but always was trying. And of course, getting that role at Salesforce was a dream job at the time because I didn't know there were roles that you could have where you could be 100% focused on design systems until I had that role. And then probably not too many people in the world did know that there was a job like that. Yeah. Like I, at that time, I don't think I knew of any other company that had a team. Maybe they called them a different name. But now, yeah, there's so many design system teams now. It's incredible. Give us some context. What what year was that that you joined Salesforce and started to work on design systems full time? Uh, 2014. So I, I was actually already at Salesforce working on a different product. And then when I found out they were making this design system team in the core part of the company, I was like, sign me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was... It pretty much changed my whole thing from, I still I still have a strong interest in product design and UX design, but it really made me focus on design systems full time. And yeah, so just the internal advocacy as well as the external advocacy was really important to me, not just speaking about the design community, but also the network of people in the Salesforce ecosystem. They have so many companies, I don't even know how many, I would say probably hundreds of thousands of companies that are building all sorts of things on Salesforce and they want their stuff to look and feel like Salesforce. Yeah. And so having this design system that was not just internal, but made for them too, was really key. And so I just kind of found myself being that advocate and I don't normally like to use the word evangelist, but that was a lot of what I was doing. And so that's kind of when I decided to just start calling myself that. And now I actually see this is kind of becoming more of a role in other companies too. So that's pretty exciting. This is something that we have heard from a lot of teams who are investing in design systems is that the advocacy part, the building like a marketing campaign almost around the design system becomes really important to creating momentum, driving adoption. Could you talk about that? Like, Walk us through that experience at Salesforce. You get on this team and you get to do the fun work of building, but now you got the design system. And and how do you take that to the broader organization and then beyond to these thousands of developers and designers who are building on top of the platform? Yeah, so when we were starting out, I think initially we thought the rest of the company would kind of follow suit later on and we were just going to focus on the design team itself course, that definitely changed when people got wind of what we were doing. But at the beginning, I was spending a lot of time talking to our engineers and explaining what it was that we were trying to do. And some of the responses I got was, oh, yeah, that sounds great, but it'll probably be like two years before we can adopt this. Even just the button would probably take two years. And because of the scale of, you know, all the legacy that Salesforce had at the time, And so we were thinking, okay, we'll get the designers using it, and then we'll release it to the third-party ecosystem. And then at some point, the engineers will catch on. And then it ended up being totally the opposite, because what happened was we put it up internally. People found out about it. Developers started using it because 
that was like a bunch of CSS they didn't have to write. <laughs> so they started copying and pasting. And then we realized we needed to flip our focus to be engineers and then third party. And then we ended up, because the designers were already so integrated into what we were doing, we were like, okay, you know, maybe the resources and things we were going to build for them can wait because we got to get these engineers doing what they're doing the right way. Instead of copy and pasting, we need to give them better resources. So that was interesting because it was a lot of meeting with engineers. We held an advisory board where they could come and ask us questions about integration and accessibility, pretty much anything that they needed. And that advisory board wasn't just for engineers. Designers and product managers could come too. In fact, we encouraged if a designer wanted to come to bring their PM and their engineers with them. So there was that. We also had office hours. I was meeting with designers, developers, even content strategists, anybody that just needed to work through a problem or had a question about design systems in general. We were doing internal brown bags during lunch. If you're familiar with Stephanie Ruiz, who now manages sure. the team, yeah. she was amazing. <laughs> the brown bags, she would throw together these tutorial workshops and yeah, it, they were incredible. And so we're like working on that kind of stuff. You know, of course, we'd had all the events like Dreamforce where like all these customers that were trying to build apps would come. So we would spend time with them, working with them to help them make sure that they're using the design system in the best, most effective way for them. So it was just a lot of internal and external talking and then communicating and helping. So I actually found the actual design work that I was doing became minimal. It was mostly talking and meeting, almost being like support slash teacher slash just uh, a facilitator. Gina, so you, you have this you know, great hybrid background, being both a designer and, and having front-end developer skills. How did that help you? You, know, you mentioned you spoke a lot with developers and getting for getting buy-in in the system. And how did that help you? And what kind of advice would you have to designers who maybe don't have that skill set. Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely helped me because I had the understanding of what was feasible. That's always, you know, engineers, I think, want to know that the designers they're talking to, like, know that what they're designing can actually be achieved. And so that's definitely something that helped. And a lot of the engineers have, at least at Salesforce, not in every organization, but the team I, I was working with, a lot of them were not front-end savvy. There were a few that I could name on one hand on that side that I knew of personally that were good with CSS. But the majority of the engineers might know the basics of styling, but when it comes to making things responsive and scalable and all that, that just wasn't there. So it's nice to meet with them and do these pairing sessions because then you can actually work through the problem with them. And then they see like, oh, wow, okay, they actually have a really good understanding of this, we should, you know, listen to that and respect that. So that definitely was, was super helpful. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. So Gina, you worked on Salesforce Lightning, and then you're independent, and you help a lot of different companies so presumably you get to see a lot of different types of design systems and a lot of different cultures where design systems are trying to be adopted. What are the challenges that you see a lot of companies dealing with as they try to get some momentum with a design system? So usually when I talk to companies, they're at two different stages. They're either still trying to get it sold across the organization, like trying to get that buy-in, And then the other is they've already got a design system, but they kind of want to take it further. Maybe it's not quite solving all their goals that they were hoping for. So with the latter, it's often like they've built this beautiful style guide. They've got their typography, their buttons, their basic components. But maybe they realize, okay, now we have that working on one product. Now we need to apply it to various other products or Maybe we need to consider native platforms now too. 
So how to bring it forward. So sometimes it might be talking to them about design tokens. It might be talking about how to architect their components in a way to be more flexible or customizable, you know, across all their different products. So those kind of conversations will happen a lot, especially since I did a lot of that kind of work at Salesforce with design tokens. It definitely helps bringing some of that experience to them. In terms of the buy-in stuff, that's always an interesting conversation to have with people that are just kind of getting started because I think there's been a lot of resources and presentations and articles that pretty much help sell the job of like why you need to do this. I think it's still just a matter of giving them the confidence that it's it's going to be worth the investment of time and money to do it. So you're really heavily in, involved in, in various communities that are kind of centralized around design systems. So there's the Clarity Conference and the Design Systems publication on Medium and the Slack channel. What have you learned through, you know, helping to kind of start or manage these communities? And where, where do you think there might still be gaps and resources for folks who are still working on getting their own design system off the ground? In terms of what I learned, I think it's just kind of like to remember that everybody's at different stages and to not assume that everyone already knows how to do everything or that a solution that works really well for you is going to be the solution that works for them. And so it's been interesting watching all the different conversations people have because somebody might come and go in like, oh, well, we did it this way. You should try it this way. And then they might be like, actually, we tried that and it didn't work. It's very eye-opening to see people from all different size companies, different customer needs have different issues. Some of them are white labeling, some of them are web only, some of them have various native platforms, some of them have 30 companies they have to support because they're an agency, and some of them are just working on a small app. So it's just one solution is never going to work across everything. Obviously, there are going to be certain basic principles and things that are, are going to hold true. But I always try to remind people, this might have worked for you in this one company, but once you move on to the next company, it might not work at all. Are there any companies that are just nailing it when it comes to design systems? Not only just in terms of you know building a super flexible, useful tool, but also getting lots of people on board and maybe even taking an innovative approach? Definitely. I really wish Facebook would put their stuff public because I went to a talk and the stuff that they're working on internally is incredible. People were like, are you going to open source this? And you could tell they were kind of like, oh, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you know, people talk a lot about the work Airbnb has been doing with generating sketch files from the code, which I think is really cool. That's another situation, though, where I, I wish I could see more of their stuff public. But You know, everybody has their reasons. I do really admire a lot of the work that I see at IBM's Carbon Design System team. It's really solid, very, very thorough, super thought through. Polaris by Shopify is another good one. Of course, I love Material. My one thing about Material is I I wish I could see code samples with the components right away, but maybe because they have Android, they don't really put everything you know, immediately visible right away because they probably have different ways to implement material. But I think their design guidelines are top-notch for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and and maybe we could, uh, since you brought up Polaris, maybe we could talk about 
how other things find their way into a design system, that it's not just about components, but there are a lot of companies that expand it to have voice and tone guidelines, design Mm -hmm. principles, lots of other pieces that help many different teams across different locations with different leadership produce more consistent experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's definitely a good thing to include things like voice and tone and content guidelines. I do think it's really easy to try to have everything all at once. So this is obviously something you want to iterate towards as you build these guidelines and standards out. One of the things that I actually enjoyed a lot when I was at Salesforce was working with the content. I guess they called themselves the docs team, but they also wrote UI copy. And so writing guidelines around when to truncate, when not to truncate, like that kind of thing. I really think you need that perspective of content people to really think through how even just content inside your components are handled. You helped us write a book on design systems on designbetter.co, which we're massively appreciative of. I think a lot of people have gotten a lot out of that resource. But it was now, that was late 2017, so likely some things have changed and evolved since then. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've seen change over that time period in the last year, year and a half, as far as design systems go? Yeah, so I've I've been seeing a lot of talk around web components. So I think a lot of people are thinking about making the move to web components. And I think that's just really more about longevity with their design system, trying to make it a little bit more tech stack agnostic. Can can you tell us a little bit more about what web components are? There's a number of uh, folks in the audience who may not necessarily be tech savvy. Sure. And though I admit I've not had the opportunity to explore them yet, so I'm not an expert on them. But it's basically, I guess, a metaphor is if you have like an iframe in your website and it's embedding like another website inside your website, it's kind of like that, but it's not that. (laughs) That makes sense. It's like this piece that has its own style and markup and structure and behavior all kind of baked into this piece and you pull that in that piece and nothing from outside that can affect it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's my way of trying to explain it, but I definitely want to explore it. I just have not had the opportunity yet. There are definitely companies that have already announced that they are moving in that direction, including Salesforce. So I'm super keen to see what they end up doing with that. Any other changes you've seen? Any kind of technologies that have maybe fallen out of favor? I'm still a big fan of SaaS, but unfortunately I've been kind of seeing a lot of negativity towards it because everybody thinks because they want to move to another platform that it means that an older platform is bad, but that's not necessarily, in my opinion, true. Just because you want to explore JavaScript for your CSS, that's fine, but that doesn't mean SaaS is bad. So I've been seeing a lot of talk around you know, CSS and JS or trying to do all your your styling in JavaScript. I'm not a fan of that. And I don't I don't think I'm ever personally going to try to adopt that. But I know some companies are. And so that's being talked about. One thing I found interesting is that design tokens have been around since 2014. And for some reason, and maybe it's just because people really caught on, but it's really going through, and I don't know if explosion is the right word, but there's a working group that's forming around it and people are talking about it more. And so there's even design tools that are 
integrating it as I mean, even DSM has it. So yeah, it's just been really interesting to see design tokens blowing up. Yeah. And so for, for listeners who aren't familiar with DSM, that's the design system, uh, systems manager, which is a, an Envision product. So thank you for the mention. Um, <laughs> could, could we talk a little bit about governance with design systems? Because that's definitely a big challenge that, you know, you, you, you lay the foundation for a great design system and it starts to, you, you drive the adoption. So people start to use it throughout the company. And then there's this governance, like if it gets misused or misunderstood, if we need to expand it or modify it in any way, that becomes a pretty big challenge too. Yeah, for sure. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of the word governance. And I know it comes up a lot during Q&As and things like that when I see anybody talk about design systems. But I guess the reason I have an issue with it is because it sounds very top-down to me. And I don't know if there's a better word, but I, I see design systems as a shared ownership and not this team is going to tell you how to how to do your components. And it just sounds, you know, when people say style police, <laughs> it kind of sounds like that. And so what I like to see is a shared, you know, model of maybe you have the design system team that is helping maintain and keeping it maintained and going and updating it when it needs to be updated. But then that really should be driven by the product and the user needs. And so having contributors, you know, as Nathan Curtis likes to call them, federated contributors across the organization for people that are actually closer to the product and what the customers are needing. So you might have Maybe if you're a larger company, you might have multiple design teams and having a representative or two from those teams meet with the design system team to help define that together. If you're a smaller organization, it might just mean you kind of do like a virtual team where you split time. But either way, the point being that it's it's a shared governance. And I also think when I see people kind of say, you know, oh, designers should own it or developers should own it. I really think that's also a, should be a shared thing. Design and engineering should share the ownership of the design system together. Otherwise, I just think it, it's going to get too one-sided and you're not going to be solving the full problem. You're only going to be solving a part of the problem. So the chapter that, that you wrote for us for the design systems handbook, part of it was about the kind of various team models a design system might take. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how you see a design system being staffed. So I am a big believer that if you're going to have a dedicated team to design systems, it needs to be a hybrid team. So meaning you want to have design and engineering represented. Ideally, you would also have accessibility, content, and all that. But at minimum, I would say a designer and developer that understands accessibility, maybe if you can't hire like a full-time person. But definitely having those skill sets on the team is so, so important. I've seen from experience when it's a silo team of having visual designers on one team, UX designers on another team, front-end engineers on another team. And it it's all it's ever done from what I've seen is it turns it into like, oh, well, we're waiting on this team oh, we can't move forward because we're waiting on this team. Or it doesn't feel like everybody's moving forward to the same goals because now they have different 
goals in mind for each team. And so I think it's really important to have that team to be a hybrid team, even if it's a virtual team. Like if you don't have a dedicated team, the people that you want working on this should be a hybrid team. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every person needs to be a hybrid, though that's awesome. But just having hybrid skill sets represented across the team is so crucial. Gina, when when a design system is working at its best, where there's adoption and um, people are on board, how do you think it changes the culture of a design team and and maybe even the relationship with engineering? I think it's amazing. Like I've seen in organizations where you do have a really great design system that's well taken care of and everybody's bought in. New designers that join the team are able to onboard quicker because, you know, they they have the resources that they need. Plus, they don't need to be concerned about what color a button is. They can work on bigger problems. In terms of engineering, this can be so, so cool because we had a redesign. It wasn't a full-on redesign. We needed to change it from a flat design to have shadows and different textures and things like that to give it a little bit more shape. And that required very little work on the engineering side because we had the design system, particularly the design tokens in place. We were able to just swap some things out and push it up. Engineers don't even need to be concerned with it. They just pull it in. It's already in and it's just working. And so that if you take the time to really like get this going and set up, it can really make both engineering and design works so much faster. So a little earlier, we talked about how some companies take a private approach, like Facebook with their system, and then Google obviously has material, which is a more public model. What are some of the things that companies should think about as they decide whether they want to make a public or private design system? Definitely be thoughtful about it. I know from experience, once you put something open source, and especially if you have a big community of customers and partners using this open source design system, once things are out, it's out. And like trying to undo or change anything is really difficult. And you have to have a really solid deprecation strategy and really good communication and support for the people using it. And so I think it's it's always good to open source if you can, because it's really good for the community. But just just to be very thoughtful and mindful about how you approach it, because if you've got millions of developers using it, I kind of think about like anytime Bootstrap makes a breaking change, how many people that actually affects. It's a big impact thing, but it can be really, really amazing because then, you know, you have all these people that are excited about it, using it. They can contribute their own, you know, if they have like maybe a variation on a component that they think would be useful for the wider community. It's always really exciting to see that. And so it's this balance just to be mindful of. How do you think maybe not even open sourcing, but just publishing it for people to see, not mm-hmm. necessarily like fork it and use it, but yeah. How do you think that that affects things like recruiting and talent acquisition? It definitely helps. When we launched the Lightning Design System, our recruiting, I don't know if funnel is the right word, but you know the people that were coming through definitely increased. And we were seeing really strong interests that maybe we didn't see before. And I think it was because it it's 
not only showing how you work and how you think through things, but it is sort of a marketing tool in a way. And not every design system needs to be a marketing tool, but it can be. If that's something that you're wanting to show people, this is what we believe for design and engineering. And these are design principles. People can see that and be like, wow, they actually care. They've got things going really well. So I want to go look at that. So Gina, you you mentioned earlier that you've created kind of your dream job, right? That you <laughs> you are independent at this point. You do a lot of great community engagement that we talked about, clarity and 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 various other things. And that's got to feel great. The type of work that has, you know, meaning and kind of recharges the batteries. Can you talk to us? I, I think our listeners would be very curious, like how does one go about creating their dream job? That is a really good question. So when I left Salesforce, I had plans to go independent and do consulting and more community stuff. And then my first client was Amazon and they ended up hiring me. And so that kind of stalled my plans. And so I was at Amazon for about a year, a little over a year. And then I, I ended up leaving and going independent again because I realized that it just wasn't really going back into a job like that. It was a number of factors. I I did as much as I could in that time that I had. And one of the reasons I wanted to go independent was actually more about like self-care. I just needed some downtime and some recharge time. And I didn't let myself have that when I went to Amazon. And it wasn't good for me. Like I wasn't being healthy. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping. It just wasn't good. So I decided to take some time again. So I actually left in September and I didn't work on anything but my own community stuff until about January. And then January, I started taking on the client projects. When you asked me like my calculations, it was kind of more of just a personal need to like take care of myself, recharge before I really jump into something big again. <laughs> And I've just been kind of lucky, I guess, because, well, maybe it's not luck, but it's, you know, I, I guess when you have companies like Amazon and Salesforce and Apple on your resume, people tend to look at that as like, oh, okay, well, let's talk to her because she seems to, you know, have done this at a large scale. And so the type of consulting I've been doing, at least the type I want to be doing, is really more of almost a coach or advisor rather than coming in and implement. And that was the other thing with when I when I was consulting with Amazon before I went full time, it was implementation. And I really think personally my take on design systems coaching and advising or consulting in general is I wanna teach and empower so that I can leave without feeling like they're stuck still. Does that make sense? I I just sure I wanted them to like be able to move forward without me. So that, I don't know, like not be a bottleneck that they're waiting on. Like I want them to be empowered. And so I've been very careful about the type of consulting gigs I take. You know, if you need me for a day, if you need me for a week, or if you just need an hour, that's fine. But I, if you need six months of consulting implementation work, I'm probably not your person. <laughs> Gina, you mentioned, you know, taking care of yourself. And I think, you know, we've had, we've had other guests too, where, you know, the tech industry could be pretty brutal on your personal life yeah. at times. Do you, do you have any thoughts or advice for people on how to, you know, even if they can't maybe leave their full-time job, just have a little more balance? You know, honestly, it's something I'm still working through, but I've been trying my best to be more 
careful with my time, like the time that I check my email, the time that I check social media, though I still struggle with, I have a little bit of a Twitter addiction, so it's kind of hard to not look there, but I'm definitely not on Facebook all the time. Like I give myself windows of time that I'll check into those things, but a large part of it was also making myself say no more, which I'm not saying I'm great at that. I still, <laughs> I still take on too much. Yeah, especially when people have really fun ideas and you want to be involved, but you got to like say no and unless it's something that you really think that you should be a part of. Just to, to bring us to a close here, Gina, what's inspiring you these days? Are you reading anything interesting or listening to podcasts or anything that might be of interest to our listeners? Ooh, hmm. <laughs> well, I, I've been kind of reading a lot of, I don't know, like articles and stuff on, I hate to use the word personal development because it sounds very like Tony Robbins, which is kind of not really my thing, but I guess do more meaningful work and be more thoughtful. I don't have articles right off the top of my head, but maybe I can send a list. Sure. Or um, I have to show notes. Yeah. And then I've been just getting outside more. <laughs> I went yeah. to, so I'm not a very outdoorsy person, but I've been doing a lot of stuff this year. Like I, I went to a summer camp in June, which was a lot of outdoor activity. And I'm actually going to another one. It's actually right after Clarity. It's with, I'm a part of this co-working space for women called The Wing. And it's a women's only summer camp thing that they're doing. So just trying to like make myself get out of my comfort zone, go outside and do things that I uh, wasn't doing <laughs> enough of before. That's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast, Gina. It's been a, a treat to talk with you. <laughs> thanks again for having me. Yeah, thanks, Gina. It's been great.